This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Eddie Opara about getting hired at 2 in the morning, about the early days of social media design, and about the importance of process in designing for today's technologically and culturally fluid environment. It's never-ending. It can always connect to something new. And that's what you have to build for. You have to be as open as possible. Here's Debbie Millman. Eddie Opara made news in the design world last year when he became partner number 17 at Pentagram, one of the world's most extraordinary design firms. He is only 38 years old, and he has already run his own firm and worked across an impressive range of media, from magazines and packaging to websites and software. Some of his work has already made it into the Museum of Modern Art, He is a true star of his generation, and there is no doubt his career will be followed with great interest in the coming years. And we have him here today on Design Matters. Welcome to Design Matters, Eddie. It's so great to have you here. Thanks, Debbie. It's um, really good to be here, too. So I read that when you first joined Pentagram, that you couldn't stop smiling. And at one point, you couldn't get the stupid grin off your face. Your words, not mine. And it is now five months since you started, and are you still smiling? Um, right now, I'm, I'm smiling. <laughs> yeah. A lot of nerves. I always smile when I'm sort of nervous. Oh, and, that's uh, actually not a bad way of expressing it. No, <laughs> I know other people, they do a lot of other right. things. Yeah. Well, I want to talk quite a lot more about Pentagram, but before we talk about your new position at Pentagram, I want to talk a little bit about how you got to Pentagram. And I understand that your mom is Nigerian, yet you were brought up in London. Um, well, my um, my parents came uh, over in uh, the late 50s, 60s, and um, they came for education. My mother was a nurse, and uh, my, uh, my father actually went into advertising. Oh, really? What yeah. advertising agency did he work with? I actually don't know. <laughs> he never stated. I've actually never asked him. But he remembers the Saatchi brothers when he was, you know, when he was a lot younger. And they were, he, he said uh, they were very... Uh, Energetic, oh, as it that's, were. A, that's a very sprightly. good political word. Yes, very sprightly. <laughs> and I understand that you were a true English schoolboy with a cap <sighs> and a right. uniform yeah. and, a, and a little book bag. Right, yes. Um, my, you know, every penny that my mother and father had, they actually put into mine and my brother and sister's education. And so we were, you know, fortunate enough to actually go to um, very good uh, private schools up till the age of uh, 14, 13, 14. And you were educated by Jesuit priests. That's correct. All the way through till I was 17. And it's really in that experience that I understand that you began to understand people in new and varied and diverse ways. Well, I I would say that the Jesuits are partly liberal and also very strict, amazing teachers. And um, they would always talk about uh, diverse subject matter and... um, you could also ask questions back without any sort of conservative uh, feedback from them. If you've ever talked to a Jesuit priest, they're actually quite open and, uh, and quite different from the uh, other orders. And, um, you know, that experience really solidified what I wanted to do in the future. I was okay at drawing. I would actually, to shut me up at church, my mom would uh, have a piece of paper and a pencil. So when I'd go a little crazy 
pencil would come out, the paper, and I'd start drawing, and I would be uh, really, really quiet. But I thought it was Margaret Thatcher that oh. really solidified your yeah, design well, career. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a true story? It's Margaret no, Thatcher, no, the milk snatcher? Yeah, Margaret Thatcher, the <laughs> milk snatcher. Anyway, growing up in the 70s, it was tough. Yeah. Well, I grew up in the 70s, too, so <laughs> you're not um, telling me anything I don't know. Well, in, in Britain, in Britain um, you know, Britain was seen as the old man of Europe. There was a lot of strikes in the early 70s, in uh, mid-70s. And up till uh, the time Margaret Thatcher came into power, things were pretty much wayward. And so when she arrived, um, everybody thought this was going to be great. She's going to save uh, Great Britain to a certain degree. A lot of people think that she did. But for me, it really came down to uh, a day when I was in class. I actually was drawing, so nice and quiet. And the teacher came in and said, unfortunately, boys, um, your milk is gone. We have no more milk for you. And uh, you can blame I don't know if she actually stated it was blame. Blame Margaret Thatcher for that. Now, why did she take away your milk? Because she took everybody's. She took well, everybody's milk away. What was it about milk the away. milk? <laughs> well, uh, it, well, you get free milk. All the kids in all schools, private and public, um, state-based, would get uh, milk for free. And uh, I loved that. You know, I loved my break times when you have, have the milk. And it was about, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock in, in the morning. And she took it away. She took it away from me. Gosh. Yeah. Well, bitch. I was going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> you, you beat me to it. Exactly. Did the press come up with the, the headline, Margaret yes. Thatcher, the milk snatcher? Yes. Okay. They, they did. So, I, you know, I trudged at home and actually asked my mom why. And she started talking about conservatives and, and the Labour Party. And, and, and our family was we're very Labour orientated. And... Uh, she said that she's taken away everything, a lot of things from the state, from the people. She, you know, I started learning more about the Labour Party in regards to giving back and um, the sense of community and, you know, the, the strengths of the NHS, the strengths of the uh, free educational system. And it really delighted me. Um, you know, you have pretty high taxes, but uh, you, you get it back. And I realised this when I moved to the bigger school, the small school was private. The bigger school was state. And there was a Jesuit state school. And we would intermingle with um, different classes, you know, upper middle class, middle class, and, and working class kids, boys, all together in one school. And my accent sort of changed from this. So, like, or change from this, say, mommy and daddy, to, you know, something I have right now, which is a mixture of just, like, you know, my name's Eddie, how's it going, to, you know, being rather regal. So it's sort of like an interchangeable like class structure I have in, in my in my soul. And that that allowed me to be very uh very open and very aware about um giving back and being part of a community, being part of a collaborative unit as such. One of the things that I kept finding in my research in preparing for the show was the idea that you believe that everyone owns what you do. And I'm wondering if the roots of that mission, so to speak, first took seed when you were in school and, and being exposed to the theories and philosophies of the Labour Party. Yeah, that's primarily it. I mean, you've just articulated perfectly. Well, talk to me a little bit more about what you mean by everyone owns what you do. I know that you tend to be open source in terms of looking at the back end of 
some of the systems you've developed. But... Well, the, I mean, there's the, the idea of being original. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, the idea of being open. Sometimes they go hand in hand. And I, I should explain a little bit more about what I think open is. And I mean, you're really sharing content with one another. The minute you sort of create something or you thought you created something, somebody looks at it and says, you know what, that's, that's brilliant. I'm going to utilize that as a component of what I'm working on. And so you really don't own the final product. It's part of what everybody actually gave you. More so in this day and age than ever, when you have uh, work that's created online or, or you know, we use the web as a, as a source for inspiration all the time, constantly. I think we're always intermingling pieces from other places and other people. So you graduated from Yale. You went to ATG, Art Technology Group. You yeah. did that right out of school. By 1999, you were already working on social media applications. <laughs> yes, that's right. How, yeah. how, how did you even have the idea to be working well, on a social media it, application? Well, it's interesting. 12 years ago. When I graduated, I actually moved up to Boston. And um, the first job I, I, I had at ATG, Art Technology Group, um, was for an online application that was collaborative, you know, socially collaborative, uh, for an advertising agency called BDDP. And um, they wanted us to be as innovative as possible. And so um, Judith Donath was doing a lot of work at the Media Lab, MIT Media Lab, on social media. And uh, we focused our attention on that and seeing how we could create affinities between people and their content. And so we built this application that would allow the advertising agency to push uh, new ideas into this particular community, and then you would actually have spaces to actually write about um, that content. And uh, so it was ads or concepts that people had come up with that were part of the, uh, the company. They would upload that content. They would push into different channels depending on what they were interested in. And then they could sort of talk and write, write about uh, those uh, ideals. You could also see that your uh, buddies were online. And this was all in a browser. This is not like, a, you know, AOL um, AIM system. This is all in the browser. And um, it was great. It was a lot of fun. So when you saw Facebook, did you think that Mark Zuckerberg stole your idea? No, no, (laughs) absolutely not. Um, I think his idea is genius. Sometimes ad agencies come up with or design agencies come up with great concepts and great ideas, but that's not the area to uh, create a product and then sell it. They wanted to use it internally, and it was an experiment. And that experiment went actually very well for Art Technology Group, the management system that... uh, we built, custom built, uh, was uh, called ATG Dynamo. And uh, from that point on, or actually a little earlier, it was utilized for Martha Stewart, Sun Microsystems, Sony, you wow. name it. It's still used. Uh, the military use it. Uh, Congratulations. Um, yeah, for a lot of people had uh, an enormous amount of shares but um, oh. <laughs> in the company. Um, and so um, um, now uh, Sun Microsystems owns that company. So after ATG, you went to Imaginary Forces. Is it true that you got a call at 2 in the morning with the job offer? Yeah. Um, well, I talked to... <laughs> really? 2 in the morning? Yeah. yeah. Woke, you rang, you picked it up. Yeah. Hey, Eddie, you want to come work at Imaginary well, Forces? I, I, I met Mikon van Gastel, who's, uh, I think, an um, absolutely exceptional designer and creative uh, person. And, um, you know, 
at ATG, at the time, we were dealing with a lot of dynamic content. So not many people knew what that was back in 98, 99. Dynamic content is all about changing content on the fly that you're seeing. So he had just won a really big um, job with Morgan Stanley. I mean, Mekon had worked on this uh, to get this job for about nearly a year before he even started on the job. What was the job? It was to do the screens in Times Square for the new Morgan Stanley building on 7th Avenue. And these screens would be the uh, longest and largest screens in the country. They are there today, and we actually did the job. Um, are they still Morgan Stanley screens? No, that that uh, building's haunted, you know, because Morgan Stanley right. and then Lehman Brothers and, hey, it's Barclays. So, you know, watch out, Barclays. I've actually, I bank with HSBC, so. <laughs> Mostly because of that then, right? Yeah. But um, he wanted to know more about dynamic content and how that worked. And um, I talked to him about it and, and we, we, we talked a little bit more and um, he offered me a job. And um, I took it, and I moved to uh, New York. And so what other types of projects did you work on while you were there? I actually uh, worked on uh, a lot of ads, you know, Mercedes and uh, Bacardi. Any movies? No movies, no. I I didn't actually get the chance to do those. Um, I did some um, storyboards and um, stuff like that for, for movies, but no, no movies. Now, here's another urban myth I need to have uh, verified. Right. Is it true that when you quit your job that you actually accepted your new job in the bathroom at Imaginary Forces? Yes. I think it was time. It was the year to the day that I had started Imaginary Forces, around about that time. And, um, you know, I had a sort of rocky beginning there. In what way? Tough. Well, um my area wasn't so much animation and uh, motion, and um, I had to learn a lot more, you know, and uh, I did. And uh, it was a lot of l- long nights. So I was also teaching at Yale at the time, uh, and um, I had also a long-distance relationship at the time as well. So that was taking a toll on me. And so I wanted to sort of try and get back into print and possibly some interaction uh, interactive design and um, try and do some other environmental um, pieces because that uh, bug had bitten in regards to dealing with Morgan Stanley. And so I went to the bathroom and uh, Michael Beirut had offered me a job before and uh, called and I said, I'll take the job whilst zipping up, I think. <laughs> and so then you did the magnificent, magnificent work for Prada. Such gorgeous work. I think that was really when I first became aware of what you were doing. And I still consider that to be some of the most beautiful retail work ever made, ever created. Well, I mean, it's funny you should actually bring that up because uh, Michael came over to ATG first to ask us for some um, help in the setting up the new media side of uh, the epicenter in uh, Prada down in Soho. And so, um, unfortunately, ATG declined, and that's actually one of the reasons why I quit there. Um, but um, my friend Karen Chu um, at uh, 2x4 at the time, um, who's also from, from Yale, did an amazing job um, doing the first wallpapers there, and um, it's exceptional. So that was sort of the lead into doing a lot of work for Prada 
And um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It now, when you talk about the wallpapers, you're talking about the wallpapers for the runway shows. Well, no, it was actually wallpaper in the epicenter. Oh, okay. I think started the whole um, idea of wallpapers for Michael and Susan and Georgie. And one of the wallpapers is of your naked body. Oh, right. right? Yes. Uh, yeah, that, that, that was an interesting one. I think Michael got a call like two days before we actually had to, or maybe a day before we had to give in a, an idea. And uh, he said, do you want to do this wallpaper for Milan show and I, um, for Men show? And I said, uh, yeah, sure, you know. And after working on other things part of that day, it was about like nine o'clock when I started working. And uh, I started doing a lot of typography and thinking this is, you know, messages might be interesting and, you know. This for wallpaper. Be, yeah, this might be good. And, and then I had a look at it. And I was like, oh, this is bollocks. <laughs> and it was about 11 o'clock after I just looked up and I was like, oh, crap. I've got to really come up with something. And I said, like, look. When was it? It was due the next day. It was due the next so day. So you had one day I, to do this. Right. And, um, you know, I had to send it off to Milan to get accepted. And so I, I came up with the concept of uh, doing myself or just like from a model that was in 3D and and uh, but i also said you know what i'll do a black guy who's like myself and a white guy who's like pink unfortunately so uh brown and pink and uh, <laughs> and um it was kind of funny because we sent it off and um i recall i had printed out a larger set for michael to see and then michael said why don't you make it why don't we make the invitation Six foot two, that's my, you know, my height. And uh, that was interesting. But they didn't go for that. They went for a smaller version. And it was around Christmas time. Um, and I had, to, I had to leave. And so the files were sent to Milan without me seeing them. And then I s- see my whole body, balls in all, super nuts, uh, across these walls. I mean, it's oh not my, my naked body. It's, it's a 3D model, but it was great. It was, and there were balls. They were part balls. They were slightly cut off. Um, <laughs> now, when you say make, you sent to them... make a, a doorway, of course. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk to you about another um, an identity that you created when you were at Two by Four for the Brooklyn Museum. Right. I'm, I'm particularly interested in talking about how you designed the identity as um, an interpretation of the Brooklyn Museum brand. I read that you felt that brands can never stay still and that influenced the way you designed the identity. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I I mean, I I should bring in Michael as well on this um, because the way that we work at 2x4 was quite interesting. It was was a little bit like school that you would have. In what way? You'd have great crits. You do these great pinups. Um, Michael would do pinup, put his stuff up on the wall. Susan, Georgie, everybody would put their work up on the wall. You wouldn't really know who who did what, and then you go through them and you start talking about them. And, and one idea would amalgamate to another idea, to another idea, to another idea. And I recall that Michael had done these like um, what he called violators. I think one or two, and and I had sort of done these bees that were slightly different and they were kind of they were very similar and so um you know after talking he allowed me to just continue on in that mixture that sort of direction and so i created eight different designs because one of the things that i felt and i think 
Michael and uh, everybody else at Two by Four felt is that Brooklyn is so diverse. There's so many different types of people. I mean, Queens is also extremely diverse. But the center, everybody's heart is the same. The love of Brooklyn is there, and that's the B. So the B should always stay consistent, but the outer area, the perimeter, is always different. And so I developed uh, eight different types, and I thought they only needed to pick one. You know, I, that's that's what I thought that uh, museums or institu- other institutions or companies always pick one design. They picked all eight, and it's interchangeable, and it and it works really well. And um, you know, the first time I saw it out in the public, it was uh, summer, and uh, a girl had it in the West Four subway, and she was holding the, a bag, a, a nice canvas bag with the logo on it, and uh, you know, had all her stuff in it. And I was like, wow. Yeah, that's 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 nice. So you went to ATG, and then you went to Imaginary Forces, so extraordinary firms, and you went to Two by Four, arguably one of the best or yeah. one of the best two. Um, and so then you decide to start your own firm, the Map Office. Right. So what made you decide to take your entire team from the Map Office mm-hmm. and go to Pentagram? Just what, what was it? How many? How long did you have the Map Office on your own? Uh, five years. So five years. You get a call from Michael Beirut? Is no, this, um, no. I got a call from Lisa Strasville. Uh, and Le- I knew Lisa um, from teaching at Yale and also from uh, uh, friends up in uh, Cambridge, Mass, Massachusetts, where she had gone to school. And she wanted me to um, give a lecture. Oh, that's always the secret code for we're interested in you, isn't it? Is it? I think it is. I'm not really sure about that. I, oh, I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that anybody that's ever joined Pentagram, it started with a lecture. It's like, would you like to come up and see my etchings? We all know what that means. Um, so, I, I, you know, I was like, you know, dumb as a, you know, <laughs> and I said, yeah, sure. Bit of food, bit of drink. That's great. Smashing. And um, and so I, uh, you know, paraded up there with uh, my crew, and uh, we had a blast. Who was there? So it was Paula, Michael, Paula, Abbott, every, Michael Garricky. Yep, yep. Um, you and know, you're nervous Jim here. I mean, I don't even know how that's even possible. Well, I was wearing my lucky pink, uh, fluorescent pink Adidas sneakers. I love Adidas. No, no, not today, unfortunately. <laughs> um, that. You know, when I lecture, I always have to wear sneakers. Why? I was nervous. And it stops me from smiling too much and sort of like I got to actually say something. And so I gave the lecture and I went to dinner. Paula, she couldn't make the dinner, but she was there at the lecture and uh, she wanted to meet me another another day. And so um, she said, pick the spot and um, picked a spot. And um, I was asked to, you know, join Pentagram. Actually, when I came back from my meeting, my guys actually asked me, so are we joining? And I, could, I was like, what? <laughs> How do you know? They just guessed. they know. They know what I being know. going for a lecture means. I really didn't know. Now, you were born the same year as Pentagram was founded. That's correct, yes. And so it was, it was sort of destined, I, I think. Yeah. So you're the newest and the youngest mm. partner at Pentagram. Do you feel pressure? Y- yes. Yes? Yes. What kind of pressure? How come? Just pressure on myself. You know, you, you come in in the morning, you, you, you sort of go through this amazing roll call of Abbott and then Luke and then Michael Garricky, Michael Beirut, and then Paula, and then it's me. And then I, I can see Lisa on the other side. And I'm like, holy crap. 
this is it. This I've got to really do my best. Now, I read that you thought that it was a big deal for you also because you're British and you're black. So why do you feel like that was a big deal? Being black shouldn't really matter in, in design at all. It really shouldn't. But when I was going to school, I mean, there were few few of us who are still mates from the London College of Printing that always worried about, like, having a role model who was actually black. I mean, you'd, you'd hear it, you'd, you'd see it in sports, you see it in acting, you see it in, in, in literature, you see it, you know, in art. But in design, practically nothing. And being black and British, absolutely zero. <laughs> and so... Coming here, you know, I, I, I recall my first day at Yale, I went to the bursar's office with my brother, and the lady, uh, who, who's black, totally f- nearly freaked out with our accents. And she's like, hold the phone. I have never... And she looked at us both, like, in amazement that we came from Mars with, like, these British accents. And she's like, oh, my God, it's so amazing. You, your accent is so amazing. And, and it was like, and we're black, right? And it's like, come on, love. Give us a break, yeah. You know, and um, but it, there is a sense of pressure there, and um, you kind of actually you hear it from friends who who are very supportive, and they say, you know, I know you can do this. This is going to be great for you. It's also great for our community, and uh, I it's think it's great it for is. design. It's it's a good thing for design, and there's so many designers of of, of from different minorities who are, are coming up or have come up, and. Um, you know, in the world today. And and it should be um, seen and labeled for their achievements. And I I think that's that's important. Well, you're certainly the role model for that. I want to ask you um, about three things that you've said, quotes that I thought were really interesting. And Mm. and then I'll let you go. (laughs) But the first one is, um, I think you made a poster of this quote for the Wolfsonian, and it's, democracy is the Helvetica of politics. Okay, right. That was done by the Map Office, my company. It was actually designed by um, Salvador Arara, a very good young designer. And we had this amazing conversation about democracy and what what it meant And uh, before we even started this project. Because none of us did. None of us knew what it meant. And so we started... So the project was about democracy. It was about um, designing uh, a poster for the uh, Wolfsonian in uh, Florida for um, thoughts on democracy, ideas on democracy, uh, what people you know, thought about it. And so we asked our, ourselves, what does it really mean to us? And we had these um, really great conversations between working on different things. And... Um, you know, Salvador actually coined that that quote, and uh, it really, really stuck. And it is; it's it's so default. You know? So that's what you mean by it. It's very default. How that's, how do you feel that democracy is is the default of politics? Well, we have we all have different ideas of democracy around the world. You know, some people don't call it democracy. Some people call it other things. You know, here you have. Um, you know, freedom of speech and um, great democratic uh, structure and framework. But in other countries that are in Africa or in Asia, they also too have different political ways of thinking that they are actually comfortable with. 
what we're trying to say is that the American democracy, in a sense, is the default way. So everybody, you know, you have to have freedom of speech, you have to have separation of church and state, which is which is great and everything. But it it feels sometimes that America has a manifest destiny that is quite imperialistic. Oh, crap, this is labor coming out of me again. Um, <laughs> imperialistic, and it doesn't really work in other countries, as we have primarily have seen. seen. Absolutely. And so that is really why that was stated. It's a very simple... Um, and, and every time you, know, you use Helvetica as an analogy, you use Helvetica... Because you can't use anything else. You're just like, you know, Helvetica will, will do that. Yeah. Because you haven't, and... you haven't tailored mm-hmm. it. You can't just drop American democracy or British democracy or French democracy into another country. I mean, look at colonialism. I mean, you, you just can't do it. You have to shape it from that country from, uh, from within. The second quote is, process is king, <laughs> but a queen is a B. Asterisk, 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 asterisk. I don't think you mean bread or beast. (laughs) I think you mean bitch. Yeah. Process is king, but a queen is a bitch. Yeah. What does that mean? I'm, you know, I'm a great lover of of the overall aspect of research and um, development and thus process. I believe that process is actually uh, as good as the final piece itself. And so sometimes the final piece actually looks absolutely crap. But your process was actually really, really beautiful. And there were some great pieces out there. So inevitably, the client's going to pick something that you may or may not like. Queen is a bitch. That comes from um, a particular set of clients that I've been working with. And that doesn't mean that the piece was a failure. It means as though that the piece is very hard. It's a real bitch to deal with. And I just wanted to clarify that for people. It doesn't matter how much work you do, the work may come out irregular and very forceful from the client's point of view that you just don't want to do it anymore and you've just got to keep going. And that's that's the reason why I had stated that. That's great. Well, the last one is, I think, my favorite, and it is never finish what you start. Yeah, never finish what you start, Period. Period. Yeah, um, it really comes from, you know, my mom always telling me to clean my room when I was a kid. <laughs> so it's a way to get out of cleaning. Well, you can never really clean your room. I mean, <laughs> you always try and design a way around it. You're like, you know, I'll just chuck that there and chuck that there. And uh, it's never really finished. You're always going to mess it up again. It's always going to be incomplete. And so that, you could say it's philosophy, um, has always been with me. And that's one of the reasons why I really love the aspects of process. Within the process, you've got so many uh, channels that you can go into, so many roots, as it were, the branches that branch out, that, you know, brands or, um, you know, identities or products today can't really be one single thing. It can't be singular. It's very plural. It, It connects to so many different channels and conduits that it's never ending. It, it, it can always connect to something new. And that's what you have to build for. You have to be as flexible as possible. You have to be open as possible. And from a sort of new, new media standpoint or development of software that we, we also do, my team do at, at Pentagram, 
you're always versioning. You're, you're never ending. You've always got new ideas. You're always finding out that you've got bugs here and bugs there, and and um, you you create new fixes on you, uh, and then somebody emails you about this particular concept or feature that you totally missed and it's not that you didn't do your job correctly it's just that you know if you sort of focus on on users or, um, or individuals everybody has a different way of working everybody has a different way of seeing and so it's going to be absolutely endless the, the billions of people in this world have always um, a way to um, perceive what a brand actually is it's never going to end. And, you know, if it does, then it's going to fail. Right. I think that's what makes it an amazing, an amazing, amazing experience. Right. Eddie, thank you so much. I really, truly look forward to all the amazing work you're going to do with Pentagram. And thank you so much for coming today to Design Matters. Thank you. If you want to see some of Eddie's work, you can download a free app of Eddie O'Para's portfolio and other Pentagram designers in the iTunes store. And Eddie O'Para designed that application as well. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.